All right, Justin, sing me a song that sounds happy, but just do a scary version of it. <laughs> wow. Um, oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. <laughs> I want to be <laughs> in that number. Oh, when the saints go marching in. <laughs> wow, that was creepy. I like it. I got a little worried there for you for a second because you actually sounded like you uh, weren't sure what song you could do. I'm like, I literally said you could do any song. Like, I was like, damn, I hope he does not stumble on this one. <laughs> it just took a second to load, but yeah, I got there. <laughs> All right. Oh, good, good. Um, Yeah, let's start the episode. Hey, Cinefans, and welcome back to another episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. I am Sterling, and as always, I am joined by Heather and Justin, and we also have a special guest on this episode, a returning guest. I just realized, Josh, I, I might fuck up your last name because I haven't said it in a while. So, Josh uh, Stifter. God, I It is up. Stifter. All right, there we go. No, good. you're all good. I was just like, well, as soon as I was about to say your name, I'm like, oh, fuck. I should have double-checked that. I'm glad it's pretty. And much I would phonetic. not have. I wouldn't have corrected you. I would have just let it go. It, you may not have said it right, but I'm not going to correct you if you were wrong. Oh, son of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we are doing. Hey, everyone! I'm here. Yeah, yeah. We are doing a fun episode. We are going to kind of take a loose uh, version of what happened, kind of, in Blumhouse's Fantasy Island. We're going to take uh, non-horror properties, and we're all going to kind of give a pitch about making them a horror property. Um, and then we're also going to talk about Josh's new film. Greywood's plot. Amazing. I am really glad I didn't fuck that. I don't know why I'm just afraid to fuck everything. We haven't had a guest in a while, so I'm just afraid I'm going to fuck everything up because I typically <laughs> just do just saying words. Um, but first and foremost, before we start, since the last time you came on, Josh, we have added unofficially the fourth question to the game, which you have not answered. So I, I do have to ask you, Josh, what's your favorite sandwich? Oh, man, that is a hell of a question. <laughs> to ask me um seems like the hardest one for you somehow <laughs> of all the questions it's an interestingly difficult one because of the fact that i didn't eat carbs for like years so i just didn't i didn't in i didn't take in carbs and when i started doing it again i fell in love with sandwiches again so there's a lot but for me like there's nothing better than a sunday afternoon yeah, I'm being very specific here, everyone. Sunday afternoon, like BLT, homemade BLT that I get to make myself. I put everything on perfectly. The Sunday morning BLT, that's my sandwich of choice. Or Sunday that's afternoon. Good. Now, when you do that, do you like Dagwood it? Because like, as you're describing it, like, you know, talking about how you make it yourself and stuff, I'm thinking of like a nine layer BLT. It is. It's there's a lot happening with it. I wouldn't say it's like nine layers. It's not huge, but it, sometimes the BLT can take on different properties outside of just the B, the L and the T. You know, it can it can vary what else is involved with that. You know, whether it's like a kind of homemade special sauce that I make for it or if it's just straight up mayo or if it's straight up like spicy mustard so, you know, sometimes I'll throw onions on there. And a lot of times it's not just a BLT, like 
put together like a typical BLT. I'll, I'll almost make it like a like a grilled cheese BLT mixture. They, there's a lot of different varieties of the Sunday afternoon BLT that I watch with like a nice episode of Last Drive-In with Joe Bob or Mystery Science Theater. It's a whole event. The event sandwich is what I like. No, that's good. It's a classic. That's a very classic sandwich. But just to remind everybody, the reason why that is the unofficial question is because uh, essentially it all comes from my love of the movie Chef and sure my utter love for the, the Cubano. Like that is my favorite sandwich is the Cubano, like the Cuban sandwich. And so it just got me curious as to what other people's favorite sandwiches were. It's just that's really it. So we just have to ask also. I think I think for me, the more than the sandwich, it's the event like the way of making it in home on a nice afternoon and i know a sandwich is gonna be good if i get if you put bacon and lettuce and tomato and some mayo and you've got nice bread like it's gonna be good but it's like doing it myself and the event of it during the day i love that that's cool that's a good answer yeah I like that. It's your sandwich. You know what I mean? You get to put your own personal touch on it. And that makes it special. I get it. There is a sandwich in um, it's a Cuban that you can get in in Atlanta at a place. What is that place called? Man, I can't think of the name of it, but it's the best. I get it every time I go to Atlanta to see my family. Um, It's at this this like strip mall place. and It's really, really fantastic can't remember the place but that's like the one that i get excited to get like i i every time i go there i'm waiting to go get that sandwich and they always have to remind me what the place is called but that's like it's not quite the same as making it your own like i love the fact that it's always the same and i know it's going to be good but when you have a sandwich you make your own and you make it yourself oh that's and it hits home oh perfect no yeah that that definitely makes sense it's just i don't know for me like, I don't want to say I'm a Cuban sandwich snob, but I am like, <laughs> I just, I don't like it when places get fucking fancy with it or try to change up what it fucking is. Like, just keep it what a fucking Cuban is. That, that's all it needs to be. Like, keep it. Yeah. Keep it simple and classy. Yeah. I went, I went, I just went to like, not, I didn't just go to, it's not like a stand up routine where it's like, oh, yesterday I did this. And it's the same story they've been telling for nine months. Um, But no, there's this, there's a place in Chicago that's like a latin asian fusion restaurant which i thought would be fantastic sure. and then i had their cuban it's fucking garbage <laughs> sure that's not that's not a fusion i really want to have with a with a cuban though. yeah but i'm i'm a sucker because <laughs> if i see a cuban on a menu i'm just like oh yeah let me have that and then sure. they go all stupid with it like the craziest i get with a cuban is there's a couple of places i know that in addition to the mustard they also put mayo and that's about as crazy as I get extra. I can't mix my mayo and mustard. That will never happen. I can't do mayo and mustard at the same time. It's too much. But I like I like mustard on a sandwich. Like I'm a fan of a, a of of a good mustard on a sandwich. Hmm. I'm the opposite. I'm big on mayo. I like mayo on sandwiches. And that's like the that's that's the go-to is mayo on a sandwich and it's always great. Like I don't mind mayo on a sandwich, but if I have a like a good Dijon mustard that's like made by you know i get it at like a farmer's market and they have this really nice mustard that comes in a glass thing and i can put it on a sandwich oh i'll take that any day i mean and this this might surprise everybody i actually order my mustard online from whataburger and <laughs> yeah big surprise sure not a surprise at all <laughs> so yeah i use whataburger mustard on all my sandwiches at home and but you know i it's weird because I'm also the same way with pretzels. Like I know a lot of people like cheese with their pretzels. 
I am a diehard mustard and pretzel person. Oh, yeah, I'll go mustard. I'll go with a, a, a nice mustard with a pretzel. It doesn't even have to be a good mustard with a pretzel. A mustard and a pretzel is <laughs> awesome. Yeah, like, and then I found out, like, I've always liked spicy brown mustard, but then I was at my movie theater and they forgot to give me my mustard and they gave me nacho cheese and I was like, I don't want this, so I had to go back. And I was about to ask them for, you know, the little standard cup of mustard, but I noticed they had spicy brown packets of uh, spicy brown mustard. I was like, you know what? I'm going to get crazy today. And I had spicy brown with my pretzel. That's fucking delicious. It is. Mm. It's great. It is amazing. That's how a lot of the sort of kitschy hipster bars in Minneapolis serve. They serve pretzels and they do the spicy brown mustard and it's awesome. Man, now I want a fucking pretzel. This is the worst time (laughs) to talk about this. It's like 10 o'clock at night and I want a fucking pretzel now. Um, and I, like I said, I didn't eat carbs for years. So, like, I really respect the pretzel right now. See, <laughs> at this point in my life where I'm back into carbs, I, I will get a pretzel. I will eat the shit out of a pretzel. <laughs> See, pretzels and sandwiches are the reason why I can never give up cards. carbs. Cards? What the fuck am I saying? Uh, I couldn't give up cards because of pretzels and sandwiches. Those are just go-to staples in my life. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough, but I did it for quite a while. In fact, I, I started the diet, my carbless caveman-y diet when I uh right before I started Greywood's plot the first time and um uh, one of the reasons I actually think I started Greywood's and started pushing forward with the idea of making a feature film was because I had all of the extra energy from not eating carbs um but mm-hmm. then as life went on and three years later I also like to enjoy life and have carbs sometimes <laughs> that's my motto every day I get it See, and then when it's a good motto. And when Justin came up here, he almost died from eating carbs. It was great. <laughs> that was insane. <laughs> well, well, that's the theory. We don't really know. I, it could have been food poisoning. You right, know, you never know. right in the middle of Parasite, he got super sick. Josh, it was, it was, it was a tragedy. In the middle of yeah. Parasite. Yeah. See, I, I, nope. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say it was the stress of Parasite. <laughs> that's really down to it. Yeah. I like that. We'll go with that. But yeah, man, I, I so I know exactly what you're talking about as far as uh, going no carbs, because I'm doing pretty much the keto thing right now. And uh, so it's very low on carb and everything like that. But every now and then I get a, a meal of choice that I want. And so, yeah, when I do get to indulge in some carbs, I do love them. And I'm a bread person. Like, that's my weakness. Is just bread, like any kind of yeah. biscuit, biscuit, bread rolls, uh, certain types of buns. I mean, like, like man, it's just I, I love bread. So that's a big problem for me. So, yeah, I wish uh, carbs just weren't so good. You know, I don't know if you'll ever love it as much as Sterling. What's your standard bagel rate that you have? When I eat so bagels, when I eat bagels at work, I eat four bagels in the morning. It's not that crazy. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, see, I and I still try to keep pretty low on carbs. I don't eat a lot. I cre- I treat it more like like a treat, like sweets, or like once a week I'll have pasta because I'm I, the way you talk about bread is the way I I'm a pasta dude. I love pasta. Uh, yeah. So that's a killer. So like not being able to have spaghetti and stuff like that kills me but i did it for a while. i did keto for a long time and really enjoyed the, the energy it gave me the way it made me feel but i also yeah like i said sometimes i just want to 
make a sandwich on a Sunday afternoon and watch Mystery Science Theater. See, and then when you look like then when people look at me and the just amount of excess that I eat and smoke and drink, they might say that I live life a little too much. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> but I do like what Justin said though, when he's like I like some kinds of buns. I just like the idea of Justin going to Walmart and buying a package of buns and just eating them. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> just buns. Like potato chips, just a just bun. I'm gonna just, I'm eating a bun. He's like, I really want a good sesame seed bun today. Hey man, I really wouldn't put it past myself to do that. You know, you toast them up. It. Hey man, hey man, you toast them, put them in the toaster for a little bit, put some butter on them. It's over, dude. Yeah, you know what I've done that before, though. Yeah, I, I, I've one hundred percent done that when I'm grilling. I'll throw a, I'll put some butter on a bun, throw it on the grill, and then just eat the bun. Like just yeah. as a little, a little treat before dinner, before you know the, the steak is done cooking. Exactly, and that is badass. No, no embarrassment about that. You should try it, Sterling. You need to get on these buns, man. Get off them bagels. Get on some <laughs> get buns. On, get, get on the buns. Get on these buns, he said. <laughs> and on that note, let's go ahead and go into the theme. Because, wow. Just wow. Um, so let's go ahead and do this. Let's do our little um, taking non-horror properties and uh, seeing if we can make them horror. And... Just because it's fun, we didn't tell each other what we're picking. So we might have some repeats. Who knows? This might be an utter calamity. But I think we're going to start with Jastin first. Just have fun because he was talking about how he's getting things prepared and shit. I'm just curious. So Jastin, what's your what's your little pitch here? Okay, my pitch. Well, I had two uh, main ideas that I was flirting with. And one of them I kind of gave up on. But I'll just start off with it. And then the other one I'm a little more confident in. Like the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, man, I actually got to a middle and I think I have an ending for it, too. Like it just all kind of came together and I was happy about it. So we'll just start with the one I was kind of flirting with. So I don't know if I'm pretty sure that you guys have seen the meme or if not, I'm going to tell you about it. But have you seen that meme where it's a picture of um, Kevin from Home Alone. And the meme is something like Kevin grows up to be the jigsaw killer or something like that. Have you seen a meme like that? No, but I kind of wish I had. <laughs> okay. I think, I, I, ha- I, I, think was- I have seen a meme like that. That sounds really familiar. I just think you're making shit up. <laughs> wow okay well I, well but it but i thought it was popular because i see it a lot and people it's something that people say um uh, all the time and so i didn't want to just like rip that idea but i was thinking you know what might be kind of fun uh if you took him and let's just say he's still like socially, maybe he's socially, a little socially awkward after everything that happens. He grows up and now he's a teenager and he's got this girl that he likes, but he can't seem to get in it. You got all these jocks and people like that. And I was like, what if like Kevin becomes this like this jaded, just asshole guy right and he just you know he likes this girl but he can't get to her everybody at school is ridiculing him and he kind of becomes this freak right like instead of maybe becoming this legendary kid that stopped these burglars and stuff like that what if it kind of goes the other way when he grows up and they start kind of going well you know is isn't it kind of a wouldn't it wouldn't it kind of be isn't it kind of weird that he 
made all these inventions and traps and hurt these guys and stuff like that. So I was thinking, you know, some people might actually find that weird. So what if everything kind of got twisted by the time he grows up? And I was thinking, what if like he just becomes this person who uh, he likes this girl and he's trying to get to this girl. So he's creating all these traps and things and trying to get rid of all of her friends and her boyfriends and everything like that so that he could kind of profess his love to this girl. So it's kind of like you got this perverse version of Kevin using his tricks and traps or whatever to <laughs> try to get this girl. And I thought maybe that would be cool because it would be the right setting, right? Because you have teenagers, so you got that whole thing. You've got him trying to come up with all these, you know, coming up with these crazy things, killing these people and all these imaginative ways. And, you know, nobody can, re nobody realizes that it's him. Nobody figures it out. But I kind of dropped the idea after a while. I couldn't figure out like how to make it all work. But that was kind of a similar idea that I flirted with is what if you took him and kind of made him the villain uh, whenever he grows up. So I thought that might be kind of cool. But that was one idea I had. So for me, I just want to see the Home Alone style contraptions actually murdering people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that was why I thought it would be cool, because it'd be like, man, uh, just imagine what you could do if you pumped up the violence with that. Because, I mean, people get hit over the head with ironing boards. And I mean, a lot of the stuff that he was doing to people, when you hear the directors and people talk about it, they were like, uh, yeah, that would kill a normal person. That That would just kill people <laughs> so home alone two style dropping a brick off the roof right on someone's head like i want to see that get gory and nasty exactly and so with the horror type of setting you could totally do this and so people are just dying by these happenstances and stuff and the and the whole time kevin is trying to get closer to this girl and her friends are dying off and he's there to be the shoulder to cry on and then of course you get to the end and then it's all revealed that this is all all these people died because of these elaborate traps that he created so i thought that that might be a cool uh take on home alone i don't even know what you would call it i didn't think of a title or anything but i thought it might be a cool idea to see that i mean fuck it call it home alone i mean it still kind of works <laughs> right you call it Home Alone, but you don't let you don't tell anyone that it's a part of Home Alone of the series, but it is. <laughs> it's just a surprise for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be tight. Yeah, that'd be cool. So that was uh, one idea that I had. But here's the idea that I think is kind of good or I hope it's good, but I'm sure you guys will let me know if it's not. But OK, so just hear me out on this idea. So um, I went Disney on this one. Uh, this is one. <laughs> I'm already in. I'm already so, in. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite Disney cartoons, and I'm about to kind of really just ravage it. So I'm sorry, Disney, but uh, I picked I picked you guys. So let's think about Beauty and the Beast. All right. So this is what I got. So we move. Uh, for, so they so, of course, we know this. We everybody knows the story, right? Everybody's seen it. Uh, you know, the B Beauty and the Beast, blah, I mean, blah, blah. Tale as uh, time. Yes, and exactly. Song, exactly. Song as old as rhyme. So uh, but but anyway, we all know how it ends. Right. So the spell is broken. 
the beast is now a prince and him and Belle live happily ever after. Or do they? Because what happens is, is that we flash forward a few years into the future. Uh, Belle and uh, the prince, they have a daughter. Um, we're just going to call her Mary. I don't know what her name is. We're going to, she's Mary. So that's her name. Uh, Gaston did not die. Gaston survived that fall. So whenever he fell off that, uh, castle or whatever, and then it's just kind of assumed that he's dead, he lives. His body gets found. He gets taken back to the town and he's got this plot, you know, and all the whole time he's recuperating back to health and everything. But he's but but he's vengeful. You know, he's got this plot. He wants to get back at Belle and the prince for what they did to him. Uh, the whole so the whole time he's formulating this underground kind of uh, mob and they're all against the prince. They 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 don't believe that. He's this good person and they feel like, oh, you know, we've got the town has got to get back on this guy. He convinces these people so long. And this is all kind of the beginning. So long story short, he him and his Gaston returns with his angry mob. They raid the castle. There's this big fight and it results in Bell actually being killed. It's kind of inadvertent, but it happens. Bell is killed. So what winds up happening is in a rage. The prince kills Gaston. He grabs uh, Belle's fallen body and he kind of and he disappears. Nobody knows where he is. So he kind of leaves uh, Mrs. Potts and Lumiere, all those characters that are now humans now. He kind of leaves them to kind of take care of the daughter, but he disappears. And, but he leaves behind this cryptic note about making things right. Uh, something about he's trying to uh, make things right, rectify things. So, but we don't know where he is. Nobody can find him. All of a sudden in the town, these murders start to happen. And these murders are pretty brutal. And this is where your horror elements come in. These uh, people are getting ravaged. People are getting cut up. And it looks like almost like animalistic. And these rumors start to circulate that the beast is back. That maybe the that the prince after Bell died, he turned into the beast again. And now he's coming back to, you know, it's it's kind of like the spirit of vengeance almost. And he's back uh, ravaging this town and he's killing people and nobody can figure out. Is it the, all they know is that these bodies look awful. They're they're they're. I mean, slashed and they're bitten and obviously it's some sort of animal, but, you know, nobody has lived to really see this creature or anything. But this is just townspeople speculating. Um, also, there is a love uh, kind of budding while all of this is going on. Um, Mar and so this is happening for years. So this all so this is happening for like years. And it's and it's kind of like on the anniversary of Gaston's raid on this castle. So every year bodies just start piling up. So it's almost like this anniversary thing, which is why people are speculating, man, uh, the prince has turned back into the beast again. Something is happening. You know, it's all got to be related somehow, but nobody really knows. Meanwhile, Belle and the princess's daughter, uh, she grows up. She grows up and she falls in love with this guy who winds up being the illegitimate son of Gaston. 
And and of course, and we find that out later and everything like that. And I had where one of those those random people that just adored Gaston, one of those random ladies. Well, so happens that before he died, uh, had a kid with one of those people. And of course, they've been keeping this a secret because the name of Gaston has kind of been this poison over the, the, the kingdom and the town. You know, a lot of people associate him with this person who has brought this curse over this town again and that's why people are being killed you know gaston is to blame for this him and his mob of guys they they went up there and they caused this whole thing so gaston doesn't have a great name within this kingdom so the mob keeps it a secret but of course you know a movie's got the movie right so Belle and um unbeknownst to her she's fallen in love with the son of gaston so that's happening. People are being killed. You still have all those horror elements. Long story short, uh, we get t- towards the end of this film. And of course, uh, Gaston Jr. finds out that he's Gaston Jr. He has a run in with the beast um, and, uh, and manages to escape. Mom gets scared, uh, suspects that the beast is after him because the beast really knows who he is. And she finally spills the beans and she tells Son, I got something to tell you. You're the son of Gaston. He's like, oh, no. And that's kind of weird because I'm kind of dating Belle. So, I mean, Belle's daughter. So he's got to tell, uh, you know, he's got to tell uh, Belle and the Beast's daughter, right? So they have that come to Jesus meeting or whatever. Uh, and I think I call her Mary, right? Yeah, she's Mary. Mary's conflicted. She doesn't know what to do. Oh, no, I'm actually in love with the person who is I'm actually in love with the with the son of the man who kind of destroyed my family and everything. So they're at odds and everything. But it comes down to this confrontation with the beast. So all of this is happening and it comes down to them kind of confronting this beast. And the idea that I had is that there's this one final confrontation. And Mary believes that this is her father. So she's trying to plead with the beast, but the beast isn't hearing it. Um, uh, Gaston Jr. tries to stop the beast. They wind up having this big tussle, this big fight um, that ultimately ends, unfortunately, in, um, in Mary getting gravely injured. Well, uh, what the beast decides to do, because this is the daughter, right? Uh, the, its daughter. What he does is he summons that enchantress, the enchantress that causes this whole spell and everything like that. And the one that turned it back into the beast. And he tells the enchantress, look, uh, I, look, I under, look, I, she doesn't deserve to die. I deserve to die. I'm the one who's been killing these people. I'm the one who's been doing this. Uh, if you take me, spare her life and take me. Uh, the Enchantress um, goes ahead and does it, you know, kind of a similar thing to what happened with the Beast, right? In the earlier story, you know, he, uh, she, the Enchantress changes um, because of the love that the Beast still has for the daughter. It changes the Beast back to a human. So this whole time we've been thinking that, and here's kind of the plot twist of the film. The whole time we've been thinking that this is the prince, that, that you know, that it was the prince after Belle dies. He, uh, you know, he obviously went to the enchantress, turned back into the beast. But when the spell is broken, uh, the beast turns back and we find out that it's actually Belle. 
And so the crazy shit is, is what happened was after Belle died at the beginning of the movie, the prince takes her body, goes to the enchantress, and he says, I will trade, take my life and leave Belle alive. Well, it works, right? So the prince dies, Belle is revived, but Belle becomes this jaded, vindictive, angry person at everything that happened. And she holds this grudge against the town because the town was always what she was trying to get away from. Remember, they all thought that she was peculiar. She was odd. They always kind of saw her as this outcast. And that's where Gaston came from. She always had these problems with the town. So she vowed that with all this hatred in her heart, the enchantress couldn't let her go. She said, all this hatred in your heart, you're going to get the same curse that your husband did. And she welcomes it. She turns, she gets turned into the beast and decides instead of trying to look for love again or anything like that, she neglects her responsibilities as a parent and she just goes on a killing spree. At the anniversary of her husband's death, she goes to the town killing people. And of course, you know, through the love of the daughter and everything, she winds up uh, turning back into her. But you don't find that out to the end of the movie. So that's uh, kind of what I had with the Beauty and the Beast horror take. That's my Who's slow clapping? clap. I just did. That's me. <laughs> damn, I was nice. like, damn, damn, it was that bad? I'm sorry. I think we were all just not sure who was going to talk first. That's what it was. <laughs> That is amazing detail. I love that so much. I mean, and you know my okay, ass awesome. wasn't going to clap. I don't clap for shit. <laughs> I clapped. I clapped. Well, I was into it. Out. I was seeing well, the whole time. I was two things. First, I was seeing it very Tim Burton, Sleepy Hollow-esque. Yes. Like, that's it. Oh, my God, dude. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yes. yes. And number two, the amount you remember of Beauty and the Beast is crazy. <laughs> like, I, you were naming names. You were talking about enchantresses. You were, like, talking about, I don't remember Gaston dying. I don't remember any of this. So, for me, I'm just like, holy crap, this guy knows Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. <laughs> that was good, though. Like, that's pretty dark, you know? It's almost like a... Um... What would you call it? Kind of like a, those Snow White movies that they made a little bit darker. It's kind of like it reminds me of that type of thing, but with Beauty and the Beast. So that was good. That's impressive detail. I, I love how much you thought it through. That was really good. How long did that take you? Right. Dude, I literally thought of that this afternoon. And then the whole idea I had, all I had was the Home Alone idea. And I was like, man, I, I mean, it's okay, but it's not great. And I can't think of how to tell the whole story. And then I thought about this and I was like, okay, what would be cool? And I was like, well, the Beauty and the Beast is the right setting. It would be great for horror because, you know, it's back to medieval times damn near. So you don't have to worry about a lot of other things and phones and this, that and the other. So you could really do some cool right. horror elements. And just like you said, the Sleepy Hollow thing, that was immediately something that I thought about. These people trying to figure out who the who this is, speculating all these rumors and everything. And then for some for some reason, man, it just all comes together. You know, how sometimes you have an idea or for a story 
And sometimes you have to struggle to think of it. And then other times you have ideas and it just comes. It just comes to you like, oh, and then this can happen. And then this can happen. And then, oh, I know what the plot twist is going to be now. And it just all came to me like this afternoon, dude, like literally this afternoon. I think there's also I mean, maybe you said this. It was a lot to take in and in, in a brief amount of time. But I feel like there's a nice um, what do you call that? Like a MacGuffin or whatever in Gaston as well, because the whole time we were talking about it, in theory, you could write it or you were talking about it. In theory, you could really make people question who is the beast. And I don't think most people's minds are going to go to Bell. So right. yeah. if you could push Gaston yeah. as the like, okay, it's either going to be Gaston or it's going to be, you know, the prince again, it'll really throw people for a loop when it is, you know, when it is Belle. I think that that twist of like, you know, for lack of a better term, like evil, angry bitch works really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, then I think nobody would suspect. I mean, as soon as I thought of that, I was like, wow, dude, nobody would suspect Belle, you know, because it, it just would be the I just think it would be the furthest thing from people's mind. But I like that, too, man, making them think that. So, yeah, I could even not have Gaston die at the beginning like that so clearly maybe it's one of those things where something happens where it's inconclusive who died. But yeah. all they get is just this letter from the prince saying he's going to make things right. And you don't know what that means. And then I like that, though, the people in the town going, is it Gaston or not? And that way, my my, my Gaston Jr. can be like, oh, is it my father? And that right. also makes that more dramatic, too. So I like that, you, man. Good stuff. Yeah, you hit you hit that when he finds out that he's Gaston Jr., you hit that beat really hard mid second act when people think they're getting to the end of the movie and you're like oh shit he's the son of the guy who's killing everyone so now he's gonna go have to fight his dad that's yeah. that's what the audience will believe and then when it's not and you hit the third act and the reveal is there it's like a ton of bricks and the people will be looking for the twist so when they're like the people who sit there going like it's not Gaston I know it's gonna be it's gonna be someone else they're gonna be like it's gonna be the prince they're laying this thing too hard on the head that it's Gaston. And then you twist it and you show that it's Belle and people will be like, oh, shit. <laughs> that yeah. would be good. Yeah. Hell yeah. Badass. I might have to write this, man. I might have to write this. <laughs> Is Beauty and the Beast, I assume that's, I mean, that's public domain. That's an old story. You could totally do a it's Beauty and the Beast. It's public domain. You just can't use any of the stuff that's strictly Disney. Like if Disney yeah, added totally. any characters, so you, if you know Disney added any characters or any plot lines in it that were just in their version of it, you can't use those. But anything that would be from the book, you could use that. True, true. Do it, do it, Jason. I might need to. Well, thanks, guys. I liked your, I, I liked both of your ideas too, because the Home Alone one was cool. Because I feel like if that was made into a movie, all the different like psychological aspects of exploring that character after he's you know grown up and stuff and has a love interest i feel like that would be a really interesting story too so i think they were both good ideas yeah and now that you say that yeah him kevin deducing that you know uh these traps and things is how i got rid of those burglars so how do i get rid of these men and the girl that i likes life i'll use my traps right. you know he Something just like that. Yeah. You know, whatever you know but yeah 
Yeah, that that would be a fun too, fun one too. And then I would set that in the '90s, so you could have all kinds of '90s cheese and references and stuff like that. And then you know, uh, Macaulay Culkin could be have a cameo in it or something. I think it'd be cool. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move on then, because now I'm really curious for you now, Josh. What's your pitch? Oof, I'm. Mine is going to be so, mine is so bad compared to that. That was That's so. That's what thorough. I was I, just thinking on mine. No one's going to put as much detail into it as Jasta did. That's just that's part. Jesus, of the I wrote like six. I wrote like six words, so it's I have no real thorough idea, but I have a concept. So I would call this. I have a name for this one. I would call it the Mayberry Murders, and it's Andy Griffith as a horror like a blue velvet meets Zodiac. Hmm. So more of like a psychological horror than an actual like, you know, monster movie or something like that. But it has that like tension and creepiness of of being in this wholesome, you know, 50s style town. But brutal murders are happening. And to me, the thing I like I instantly started thinking about is you could play with the kind of not necessarily satire, but the joke of some of these you know, Don Knotts type characters and, you know, the little Ron Howard and Andy Griffith being kind of like the stoic character of this thing. And you could use this. Uh, how, how do I put this? You could have like the modern mentality of how brutal psychological thrillers have become, but put it in a setting that doesn't feel like it quite fits and get really nasty with it. Now, I do have a question. Is it going to be black and white? I don't know. I'm, I think maybe that's where my mind instantly started with this is because I've been living in this world of black and white with Greywood's plot. And I, I recently got really, really obsessed with uh, The Lighthouse. And so I think I instantly was just like, what black and white thing would be awesome to see really nasty in black and white? Um, I don't I think with this, you would have to go not black and white. You would have to pull people a little bit out of straight up. uh Andy Griffith show you would just you're it's more referential to Andy Griffith than it's literally you know Andy Griffith you call the character you could call the characters Barney and and Andy Taylor I think that was their name Barney Fife and Andy Taylor and and you you market the movie as R-rated creepy and you're playing it a little tongue-in-cheek but you get to get pretty nasty with it I think now I think the best thing to do to set this up though is the entire opening credits still has to be to the traditional Andy Griffith theme song. That's exactly what I was thinking. You go with that that theme song as you're doing a montage of credit, newspaper showing the murder that happened, and then show the murder. So you see what the murder is, but then you get to see it from the killer's perspective. And the whole movie, you're trying to figure out who the killer is. I don't know. At the end, it's probably Aunt B or something, but it or... (laughs) (laughs) gomer pile i don't know someone but it's to me you could get away with doing stuff like that and being kind of tongue-in-cheek so you have that dude i can't whistle the theme song while you're seeing all of these brutal murders that would be awesome and just imagine like a slower kind of spookier version of that theme like a you can synth, really a dark synth minor version. See, you do that yes. at the you do that at the end of the movie, but the beginning of the movie yes. has to be that upbeat peppy song to just get that fucked up juxtaposition of that song yeah. and that the terribleness that you're witnessing. 
or mm. I'll play I'll play devil's I'll, I'll I'll play devil's advocate to that and say you could start with the dark one and you know then the audience is like okay that's that's whatever it's we know it's a horror movie they've seen the marketing they know it's horror but at the end as the killer has Andy Griffith tied to the or, or Andy Taylor tied to the chair and he's cutting off his toes one by one that's when the whistle <laughs> begins the happier one done Ooh. Man, that's good. Actually, that's, that's really good. That's tight. I like it. I don't know why he's getting his toes cut off. That was like the most awful thing I could think of in the moment. <laughs> no, that's pretty bad. I uh, I like it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to take the position of toes getting cut off or good. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if somebody does, they're the person that's the fucking killer. That's how, that's how you deduce who the killer is. You just have Barney Fife walking around going, do you think toes getting cut off are good? And then he's like going around asking everybody's like, no, no. And then finally one person's like, yes. And then he looks at him and then he kills him. <laughs> yes, I'm in. And then I started thinking about who would play Andy Taylor and Barney Fife in this modern version. And I was thinking like, you know, Josh Brolin would be a good Andy Taylor. And like John Mulaney could be Barney Fife or. Yes. <laughs> or you could go a little different with Barney Fife because, you know, Don Knotts, he was super skinny and lanky and goofy like that. But it was really like his facial expressions that that sold that character. So I was thinking like a Josh Gad could pull something like that off. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I know he's not the same build. He's like a, he's like a heavy dude and whatever. But like his just the way he kind of holds himself has a bit of Don Knotts to it. See, who I actually picture as Andy Taylor in this to where you could get some of the wholesome comedy elements of it, but then I think could, you know, be more serious when you need to, would be Ty, uh, what's his name? Ty Burrell from, he's in Modern Family. Uh, he plays Phil Dumphy in that. Oh, I know you're talking yeah, about he, the dude he, from uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yes, he is in Dawn of the Dead. He's uh, he's also plays Doc Samson in the Edward Norton Incredible Hulk. Um, he does. Yeah, yes. that's right. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, he's just, he's kind of got the same build and he's got like that wholesome dad image to himself. But then, you know, I could also just see him like being a detective and being like, you know, like really like playing that almost psychological torture of this guy is terrorizing Mayberry and he's like, you know, supposed to be the last line of defense against something like that. And he's like in way over his head. I could totally see that too. It depends on how you want to go with Andy Taylor um, because I can't believe it. Yeah. Uh, because in my head, I was like, that's the character who's going to be on the poster and you need to sell it as like a little bit tougher. But I, I, I agree. I think that if you went wholesome dad with it and the, like the whole general theme, that's where you get the blue velvet of it all because blue velvet had that like mystery of this university kid coming home and trying to figure out what's going on in the town. So you can get that sort of naivete trying to figure it out. Yeah, definitely. And you know, like you said, it's like it really depends on how you want to play it, because if you do want to play it, you know, more referential to, you know, the Andy Griffith show and yeah. things like that, then, yeah, Josh Brolin would work if it's just referential to it. But it's got its own tone and own, you know, mentality to things. Yeah. He could Which is where I, I, you know, I was kind of thinking that mindset of um, what happened with the new what, what movie are we? We're doing this because of Fantasy Island where Fantasy Island didn't really do very much that was like the original. So I kind of was comparing it more to Zodiac and thinking like, okay, what would a modern detective be like trying to figure out these murders? But I think you're right that they send, if they do send, you know, wholesome dad type character, 
to this little town that's had a couple of murders, but then he's there as everything starts to really shit really starts to hit the fan. Then he's really like a fish out of water. And that will put us in this place of like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to him? See, and you keep saying Zodiac. So it also makes me think Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo would be good as that, too. He's kind of a happy medium. Yeah. He can kind of like he's wholesome. You you look at him and you're like, what a nice guy. But he also is, you know, he's he's tough enough. Yeah. See, I want to have fun with this one now. See, now I want to think of who the killer is. I that's where I didn't I didn't think I didn't go as deep. I think that's where I should have gone mentally is who is the killer. If you go like with the traditional Andy Griffith type of thing, you need people to think it's the homeless grifter, but it's right. not. You have to have yeah. a homeless grifter and everybody in town thinks it's him. They even try to do like a mob thing where they try to like kill him and shit. And Andy Griffith has to come save him or Andy Taylor, who are the, you know, he has to come save yeah, yeah. him. And all that other stuff, because that's very much in the lines of an Andy Griffith episode, you know, because there's always like the episode where like somebody's running around stealing pies. And everybody's like, oh, it's the homeless grifter, because there's always one of those in town and it's always a new <laughs> homeless grifter. And then it turns out, no, it's just a kid who's just fat and likes eating pies. Yeah, 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 totally. I'll see. Then it's got to be Aunt B. It, She's got to be the killer. It's, it's see, Aunt B would be fun. Um. Yeah, I think I think I, that's where my me- mind instantly went. But then also because my mind instantly went there, I was like, maybe that's too obvious. Maybe it has to be like, what was his name? Floyd the Barber. Is that the Barber's oh, name? Floyd? Yeah. I, I only know that because there was a Nirvana song called see, Floyd the Barber. <laughs> see, I'm trying to think of it because I have seen a lot of Andy Griffith because it plays on the Sundance channel on Sunday mornings. Sure. And so I've ended up just happenstancely like seen a bunch of those but my mind keeps going back to like murder she wrote and if you did one of those it would have to be the doctor since he's like best friends with jb fletcher yeah so you would have like so i keep thinking that and i'm like so i'm trying to think of what that character would be in the the andy gervin thing if it's not going to be aunt b you know what i mean like who's that ancillary character who's just around so much in all these episodes that would really be somebody that somebody could make that connection to. I just don't want it to be a random character. You know what I mean? Like it would have to be somebody that's an integral part of the Andy Griffith show. Like, I mean, then you've got to go Opie. It's his own kid. You go Opie and his kid is a murderer. (laughs) Man, I just want to make Ron. I just want to make the, you have Opie be the killer, have aunt B know it, but she's trying to protect him. Oh, she's trying to cover it up. So everyone kind of maybe has this idea that like it's going to be Aunt B. You know what I mean? Like it's in the back. They of their find head. a bloody knife in her shit, and it's all because she found it in his shit. But she's trying to save him, right? But it's been Opie doing it the whole time, and he's just like psychopath child. Man, Opie, man. He just wanted to help his dad. <laughs> so find then, a sense so of then, who's Opie? Who plays Opie then? Ah, uh, that that Stranger Things kid, Finn Wolfhard. Finn, what? Yeah, that, yeah, he. He's gonna be creepy. I can see it. No, I think you have. I a, just threw that. I think you have the kid. one that plays he's Will. I think would be a good one. Oh, he has that more innocent look about him, right? Exactly. That, that would throw you I off. Have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's just he, uh, so in Stranger Things, he's the one that disappears in the first season. So he's a little bit more like skinny and frail, and like in like Heather said, a little bit more innocent looking. I can see that. I can see that. Okay. Yeah, you go with the innocent kid who you know. Maybe you have him get in trouble for something stupid early in the movie, but he just kind of like, he's just like, oh, my boy. <laughs> and they have like a little bonding moment. 
See, <laughs> so you totally throw people off. That kid would be great at it too because he does great sad eyes. Yeah, he does. He's like, be like, oh, Paul. Shit, I'm you sorry. started out. You started. You started out with him getting caught for stealing a pie off of the yes windowsill. <laughs> He's like, oh, Paul, it just smelled so good. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> right. They have to speak the same way too, right? <laughs> well, Opie has to call him Paul. He just has to. You got to do it. Yeah. And then he cooks his dad into a pie at the end. That's how it ends. You just <laughs> you see him cutting up his dad and you, you see him cut up his dad. And then you hear that whistle start right as he drops the pie down or you hear it start. And then you see him come into focus as he puts the pie on the windowsill. And there's like, you know, Andy, Andy's finger hanging out of it. No, he just, he just, oh, puts, he just puts the badge on it. It looks just like a regular pie. Yeah, he puts, and then he just puts the badge right on it. Oh, I'm in. damn. Damn. <laughs> Just damn. I would totally watch it, though. I'm not going to lie to you. I would absolutely be there for that. I feel like that's a plausible idea, too. Like, I don't feel like that's that much further off than Fantasy Island being turned into a horror movie and, like, right. completely changed. See, and that just really reminds me. There's a great web series that I know Justin has seen, but it's called There Will Be Brawl. And yeah. And it's where they take like Super Smash Brothers and they make it this weird, gritty, like dark noir, like web series of like a whodunit. And okay. It, and it follows Luigi as the main character. And it's fucking phenomenal. Like um, Kirby is a weird, like Hannibal Lecter, uh, like serial killer because he just eats everybody. Oh, man. You know, and shit like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Anybody out there, just, yeah, Google There Will Be Brawl. It's like 10 episodes, and it's fucking amazing. And these people just did Watch it. Yeah, these people just kind of made it, and it's just, it's just a fucking phenomenal, like, underground thing. Kind of in the lines of what we're talking about, just taking an existing property and turning it up on its head. And this just kind of really reminds me of it, because you're taking something essentially just utterly wholesome. Sure. In all way, shape, or form. Like, the worst crime they ever had on Andy Griffith is, I think honestly i think somebody stole a pie and <laughs> that was it every time you know, it's shit like that or like somebody's <laughs> necklace got stolen or something and it turns out it was actually just yeah. a squirrel you know and just taking... it was there's a lot of there was a lot of theft like a lot of petty theft that yeah. was happening you know somebody's just like oh my mom's birthday card got stolen sheriff <laughs> yeah and just it's just utterly wholesome and you just take that idea and you, then you just elevate everything you know to the billionth degree i love it all right so heather it's your turn see i feel like mine's gonna just pale in comparison to these really good ideas um but yeah so mine and i don't know why this is the first thing that i thought of was um my mind went to the care bears <laughs> um oh so so my thing is i was thinking what if the Care Bears, what if they're really just body snatching aliens who actually ate children and absorbed their personality traits of those children? And then basically the whole idea of it is these aliens, they're trying to get rid of all the children of the land until there's just essentially no innocence in the world left. And that's their whole goal is to just rid themselves of the children and just parade around as the other children to gain the trust and then make them become the care bearers when really it's just aliens taking on the personalities of these children that they've eaten and killed. 
<laughs> wow. I like that. That's, that's <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you had me at Care Bears and then had me again at eating children. So, <laughs> and I, I mean, it almost is, what is it kind of like that eye zombie thing where she kind of, doesn't she like take on the personality of the, the brains she eats yes. or something like that? Yes. That's what, so, so kind of, kind of like that concept. Yeah. Like depending on what type so of brain who, she eats, like she turns into like a version of that person. Like, so if they're like a martial arts expert, she's a martial arts expert. Yeah. So that was my idea. <laughs> so does the movie follow like a group of kids who don't want who kind of like find out that this is happening and don't want to become the bears or does it follow the bears as they <laughs> eat kids? Who's the who's the protagonist of this? See, that's a good point, because I feel like it should be from the perspective of the the care bears. So you kind of know, because I mean, if they're parading around the town and nobody knows any different than other than, oh, sweet care bears, you know, but like you see it from their perspective and just the show that they're putting on of like okay this is the personality that i am today <laughs> like how they're going out and trying to in a sense um persuade these other people into their group of you know care bear things <laughs> so you're taking the sort of uh killer clowns from outer space style where you're like focusing on the antagonist more yeah. than the protagonist because I think it would be more jarring that way because, you know, like the whole everybody knows that show is like just so wholesome and everything. And if you started out with the perspective of, oh, they're completely evil in the opposite. And it's just from the beginning, just super jarring and shocking to you. And it just draws you in right away, I think, when you would play it that way. Do Care Bears this? I'm going to show my ignorance about the Care Bears. Do the Care Bears each have a personality? It's like happy and smiley and when you get into the actual cloudy. care bears yes when you get into the care cousins not as much there's a thing the called care the cousins. care cousins yeah that's where <laughs> i almost forgot about that that's actually Lionheart and, and swifty the rabbit yeah. and the raccoon and stuff yeah. oh, the ones is. that are the not that's they're, true they're just like the care bears but the other animals they're the care cousins from the forest Holy of feelings I if i'm thinking right <laughs> oh my so god so the thing is i knew that but in my mind they were always just the care bears like i i know that they're not bears but i just always consider them part of the care bears and not care cousins but yes you are correct because they debuted yeah. in care bears the movie That's yes how I, know this. <laughs> I know none of this that was a I'd... very big staple of my childhood yeah and i'm trying to figure out what's a way that we can kind of uh darken the Care Bear Stare. You know that move that they oh, had? No, no, where no, they no. Were like you have you play the hand you play the Care Bear Stare the exact same way, but all it does is just like that's like the tractor beam to the kids. Like so if they hit a Care Bear Stare on a kid, it like pulls the kid in and then they just get like absorbed into them type of situation. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 Let's see. I'm picturing blob like like in the blob where you see the blob like melt the people i want the melt into the care bears just the nastiest oh exactly like they just walk possible. they walk yes. towards them and just slowly dissolve like into the care bear yes but i would yes. I, I think a better way to do that though wouldn't be to focus on the care bears strictly i think you almost play it slightly like hocus pocus where you kind of have a group of mm. kids that are trying to escape them but then you also have the group of the Care Bears that you kind of bounce back and forth between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. That hocus pocus thing of like the 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 witches are really the 
main the, there's focus a main character of the movie. But but the kids have just as much screen time. Yeah, yeah, like for sure, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense too because yeah, it's because you have to have some kind of um, protagonist antagonist situation in it. So yeah, I definitely see that. Because if you Which don't I make me care a, about that's these kind kids, of how killer clowns is too. Yeah, because if you don't make me care about these kids, I'm not going to care when they're getting all dissolved. You have to give me one group of kids uh, that I want to not get dissolved, even though I'm right. still going to be rooting for them to be dissolved. Yes. Like if it was yeah, the yeah, Stranger yeah. Things kids and they were like about to get eaten by these Care Bears or something, you know, you got to like care about the characters. But I think you you don't really, depending on how you did it, you wouldn't really have to care that much. Like killer clowns from outer, outer space, you didn't really care about the people at all. You didn't really care what happened. You just wanted to see the clowns. <laughs> if the if the if the um, Care Bears looked awesome and it was like fun to watch them or like uh, most of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, like you don't really care about the characters. You just want to see Freddy kill people in cool ways. If these, if these uh, kids are quasi likable, like they don't have to be completely because you want to be that happy medium of, you kind of want to see them die. Right. Yeah. You can't you know care I mean? too much or you're going to root for them. Yeah. <laughs> see, so you just, just have has, the just least annoying characters. No. Like the least annoying kids are the ones that you root for because any annoying kid, yes. you automatically want them to die. Right. <laughs> or at so least have, I like, do. Two kids that you're, you're quasi rooting for just two of them. There's two that are kind of like our hero characters. And even yeah. them, you don't really care that much. You just care enough to like watching the movie. Right. But you don't really exactly. care if you see them in a sequel. So if they die at the end, okay, fine. You're not going to be mad about it because you really just want the sequel to be another Care Bears murdering people. See, I think <laughs> yes. I think you go if you go the sequel, the sequel takes place 30 years later where essentially the Care Bears have made the world a desolate wasteland and there's just a group of survivors mm. that are trying to take down the Care Bears. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, that would be a good follow-up for sure. And then that's when you bring in the Care Cousins because then you could have those be genetically modified and experimental Care Bears. Oh, fuck <laughs> that. Yes. No, you have the Care Cousins be genetically modified corpses of Care Bears that the, the survivors have made to combat the Care Bears. Oh, that's better. I like that. Just because I want to see Lionel okay. be like a Frankenstein. Or not Lionel, Lionheart. Yeah. <laughs> or is it Braveheart? It's Braveheart, Lion, or Lionheart. It's one of the fucking two. It's, I think it's, it's Braveheart. Lionheart. Yeah, it's Braveheart. Braveheart. I believe it's Braveheart. Uh -oh. well, see, and they, they fuck it up, though. Like, because if you ever watch Care Bears, the movie, every once in a while, the Care Cousins don't have the emblems on their stomachs until the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. Is whenever they get their Care Bear powers at the end. But randomly throughout the movie, because in the 80s, nobody actually cared about animation, they'll randomly have their emblems on their stomach for like a scene. Oh, wow. <laughs> Even though that's a plot point. Yes. That's hilarious. Because that's just right. that's the ultimate character design is to have that. Right. So when they came up with the character designs themselves, they had the emblems. So every once in a while, they'll just randomly appear. <laughs> right. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. It's, it's kind of like when you watch the Ninja Turtles cartoon now. Well, the original Ninja Turtles cartoon, you watch it now, and they'll have like Michelangelo's voice coming out of Raphael. Oh, yeah. They do it all the time. I yeah. watch it with my boys, and it's crazy how often they screw something up in the animation. Or like literally halfway through a shot, their color, the color of their bandana will change. Like, yeah, ha half of the or half of it was done one day and half was done another day by a different painter. And they just totally didn't pay attention to what paints to use. <laughs> Or in yeah. the Transformers, where they cough when there's smoke around. 
<laughs> yeah. We had shitty cartoons, a, is what I'm saying. I oh, but they're so good. All oh. of the all of that nastiness is what makes me love them. Don't get me wrong. I'm <laughs> probably going to go buy Care Bears the movie after this. Um, yes. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and do my pitch, but I'm not going to tell you what I'm pitching at first. You're going to figure it out very quickly, but I'm not going to tell you what the pitch is. So I like think this. about this. Oh boy, a young couple moves into just an atypical suburban neighborhood. Everything seems fine at first. You know, they've got friendly neighbors and stuff like that, but there's always this one house that just seems a little bit off from the rest of them. And then one day, they get a knock on the door. It's just a couple of days after they moved in. And they open the door. There's three little blonde girls standing there with a jello mold that has pears in it. You know, as a welcome to the neighborhood gift. And, you know, they seem just a little off, and they're not quite sure why. Progress like a couple of weeks later, they get another knock on the door. There's three boys there. They're like, hey, mister, can we mow your lawn? And he's like, yeah, sure, I guess. You know, how much? Like 20 bucks? And they're like, oh, gee, mister. No, that's too much money. We'll do it for $5. They're like, well, that's a little little weird nowadays. But they're like, yeah, okay, sure. And they, you know, give the kids $5 and they mow the lawn and shit like that. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, they're having like a block party and all this other stuff. And then there's this man and this woman and there's six little kids all show up to the block party. But they're all dressed like straight up out of the 1960s. And everything just seems a little off. They very much, all of them, act 100% as it's still 1965. All wearing bell, bell bottoms and things like that. They've got the oldest daughters just kind of terrified of footballs as the kids are playing in the, in the street. <laughs> but they just seem a little off. They don't really think of it. They're like, yeah, whatever. They're not hurting anybody. That's fine. And then the next thing you know, their dog's missing. And nobody knows why. Nobody knows where it went. And then they come to find out after talking to some of the other neighbors and stuff like that, that that just seems to be a trend. Everyone in the block, just any pets they have just end up disappearing. But then, you know, so after a while, nobody's getting pets anymore. This was, like, you know, the first couple in a while to bring a pet. And then just a couple of weeks later, all of a sudden, like, a kid disappears. And nobody really knows why. You know, it's a big deal. A child goes missing in this block. You know, everybody's, like, you know, searching. It's a big deal. But ultimately, you know, they have no idea what happened to this little kid. And then so as time passes, it's just weird, weird things like this happening over and over again. And then all of a sudden, like at night, one day, like the guy notices, it's like those like six kids are like walking around the neighborhood and like just like looking into random houses, windows and stuff like that. And he's like, well, this is fucking weird. And so he like, you know, sets up cameras and stuff like that, just like really start tracking. And he starts seeing like every night these kids are going to all these houses and stuff like that. And then finally, one day they get a knock on their door. And it's this woman. She's dressed like a maid. Her name happens to be Alice. <laughs> and she looks really worried. Then she starts to tell, and they invite her inside because she's like, a, you know, really got to warn you guys. And it turns out that she's the maid at this house with the weird little family. And she's warning them, like, hey, like everyone else is on this block has kind of accepted this because it really just kind of keeps the peace. But you've kind of got to just, like, back off with your surveillance and everything. Like, they're starting to notice that you're a little bit too concerned about what's going on at the, the Brady household down the street. And they're, very, you know, they're a little weirded out by her, but... They don't really take her too seriously. And then the next thing you know, like a couple weeks later, Alice's body is found on the other side of town, just slaughtered. And then they start to think, maybe she was right. And they're wondering, is it too late? Well, that night they find out because the Bradys come and murder them. And it comes to you, you come to find out that it's all this weird cult thing, like sacrifice thing that they do. And actually that house that they're in was the one that is considered like more or less the sacrificial house of the block like whoever moves in they're the ones that get sacrificed the only problem was is 
the one time they were going to uh, come kill the family, they happened to be on vacation for the weekend. Took a long weekend. So they ended up having to kill another little girl instead. But then, you know, as time passed, it was time for another sacrifice. So that's when they come to take the family. And that's really all I thought out. Because I literally just came up with this idea halfway through Jastin's Beauty and the Beast idea. <laughs> I, came good, up, I came up it's with good. several ideas just in case if anybody else had wow. one that i was gonna do and i just gave that up right in the middle of it because i was like oh fuck it no i'm gonna do the birdie bunch so i had to think of that real nice quick. um i did also have a i was very... actually gonna do uh gilligan's island oh that's what i had gilligan's island on my list as well that's the one i was gonna do but then i was like no i just thought of this i'd rather just wing it instead of actually doing what i planned out I like I'm a sucker for any cult movie. Like generally, if it's a movie about a cult, there's been a few that I don't like so much. But generally, cult movies will suck me in. So I like taking it and going cult with it. Yeah, that's a neat idea. And um, the the whole thing about this cult and, and it would be funny if like you don't know what the name of it or whatever, like like they kind of flirt with the name or whatever and then maybe like it right right when you get to the end they you know it's called the brady bunch or something like that Fuck it. they like could they, be like they could be members of the manson family at that point who really you know yeah this, that's what i like about it i instantly oh, okay. was like hey, like a manson family take on this on the brady bunch <laughs> yes <laughs> that's good okay. i got you yeah yeah but yeah something like that and it's also because i actually absolutely love the brady bunch movies that came out in the late 90s yeah like i think they're utterly fantastic because i love their sincere take on the brady's while also putting them in a modern setting so i just like taking because so my idea is actually more of a horror idea of that than it is actually the traditional brady bunch it's the brady bunch now yeah, totally. you know that they're like kind of just out of time but you find out it's because they're all just weird cult members right that's what i was thinking too is it takes it you basically took what they did with the brady bunch which was take the Brady Bunch, which was a comedy, but it was always just more of like a family sitcom. And they made it like a ridiculous comedy. Like they went over the top goofy with it. You're doing the opposite where you're taking the concept of that over the top goofy characters in this modern world, but you're going horror with it. And like totally, like literally the opposite. And I just, I like the idea of having one scene, like when the kids are coming to like take the people and back to like back to the Brady house that like... Like and also, like I said, it all stems from the the movie versions of it, where Jan's just utterly uh, the like utterly unhinged one and stuff like that. Where like Jan's like when they're just like tied up at the house and all this other stuff, she's the one like taking like a slice of skin off one of their arms, and they're like Jan, you know you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Or like Marsha stops her and she's just like and everybody's like yeah, listen to Marsha and she's all Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. You know, but she's just like the really deranged one and stuff like that. I just like that idea of they're like all trying to blend in, but like Jan is unhinged, like to a scary, like serial killer degree. Right. So, yeah, just something like that. Like, you know, and you can fill it out with scenes of like, like I said, at the block party where, you know, they they always just end up sticking together and stuff like that. And like I said, you know, it's just everybody's kind of resigned themselves to that in that neighborhood because it's like, generally speaking, like everything's just works out you know what i mean like everyone it's a very safe neighborhood they have like zero crime there other than like you know the weird missing pets and that's jan and that's just jan killing all the dogs and cats you know <laughs> and you know just like something like that where it's just everybody's kind of resigned to it because they live in the safest place in town and so they've just kind of accepted that 
as long as they don't like push the apple cart because you can even have like, you know, Alice telling a story where, you know, another house tried to call him out on it and, you know, tried to call it the neighborhood out for accepting it and all this other stuff. And then the next day they were gone and apparently moved to Florida and everybody just knew that the Brady's took him out. Yeah. Trying, you know, something so like the, that. Yeah. And see, and then one of the other ideas and I talked because when we were talking earlier, like with Heather and Justin, a text message, you know, when they were like, oh, should we tell each other the ideas? And I'm like, no, because I've got several just in case. And it's like one of my ideas was the gummy bears, but do it and it take like gremlins or critter where it's these sure. bouncing bears that are just attacking and eating everything. It's just a quick <laughs> idea of it. That's good. I do like that. That would be scary. Just imagine a bear jumping around like that eating trying to eat you i mean that would just that would be scary as hell honestly now i'm a sucker for little monsters any sort of little monster is just fun for me to watch so i think if you kept them small but like not tiny not like gum literal gummy bears but like if they were like the size of a teddy bear gremlin style yeah yeah well obviously i'm a sucker for an evil teddy bear so exactly just keep it (laughs) that's true just keep it teddy bear sized but they can bounce you know so you're not really safe at any height or distance and I, and I want to keep it true to the original where they can talk. Like, they're fully sentient creatures. Yeah. but I love it. Yeah, no, there's just a little idea I had. Like I said, I wasn't expanding it, but I was like, no, I came up with, like, six ideas just in case. I wrote down, I just wrote down Elf. I just thought an alien monster that comes in and eats cats and a guy who tries to, like, it's, it's basically, like, evil E.T. I want to see that. See, I originally toyed around with the idea of doing E.T., but then I was thinking... That actually just comes across like the proposed sequel idea for E.T., which yeah. was the, and I don't know who anybody out there who knows this, but the original sequel idea for E.T. was that E.T. actually comes from a, a race of aliens that are all like warmongers. And he was like one of the few good ones. And so he comes like, so after he goes home, they all come here and it's like an alien invasion movie is was the proposed like pitched idea for an E.T. two. But then people thought maybe that'd be too scary coming off the back of, you know, E.T., like the penultimate, like, kids movie ever. And then you take the sequel and just make it this utter fuck fest of a horror show, which (laughs) I think is a great idea. But I guess other people didn't. They wanted to keep the character beloved and shit. (laughs) Well, I think wasn't the proposed idea, though, that E.T. comes back to warn? Yes, yes. He comes back at the beginning of it to warn them. Yes, yeah, so E.T. is like still a good guy trying yes. to help Elliot out, but it, yeah, but then it becomes like an alien invasion thing. Yeah, the rest of them just show up and want to slaughter people, which I'm still down for. I mean, this is 2020. If you can't do it this year, when can you ever do it? I was just going to say that. Like, I feel like now is actually the time to do that. We've had enough time go by. E.T. is still beloved, but it's, you know, it's past. It's not like everyone is talking about E.T. all the time. Now you go straight up E.T. two. You're fucking dead, humans. (laughs) See, and I know a lot of people on the internet, like, hold things sacred. Like, they don't like remakes or anything like that because they're like, things are sacred. I'm not one of those people. I don't give a fuck what you remake, how you want to remake it, or anything like that. So I'm completely down for an E.T. sequel that is rated R and just violent as fuck. (laughs) I am too. I will watch that movie. I say fuck it. Reboot it and make it rated R and violent as fuck. Just instead of it being E.T. 1, just have E.T. 2 be where, you know, E.T. shows up and they're like, oh, look, he's nice. And all he is is gathering intel. And then at the end of the movie, he laser blasts Elliot and sends the beacon for them to, like, come to fucking come take over the Earth. <laughs> Damn. 
green light it. Like I'm, I'm down for all of it, but so is there any other ideas that you guys had? Not necessarily full length pitches like we've done, but just quick little ideas or anything like that. I had nothing else besides I wrote down Gilligan's Island and Elf just in case Andy Griffith got taken. The, the Mayberry <laughs> murders got taken. See, like my idea with with Gilligan's Island, I think one reason why I abandoned it to go with Brady Bunch right in the middle of the podcast was because I didn't know exactly where I wanted to take it fully. Did I want there to be something on the island that was attacking them or was one of them like a serial killer, you know, which I feel like both of those are slightly overdone. But could you just make it interesting because it's the Gilligan's Island characters, you know, like I think it'd be great if it was, you know, what's what's her name? The the millionaire's wife, if she's actually the one killing everybody you know, or something like that. Or is there just like a monster on the island? Like they show up on the island and all this other stuff and it's just weird island monster. She's essentially, essentially the first season of Lost at that point. Yeah, but then it can just end and be good. True. True. Um, Yeah, that's sort of why I gave up on Gilligan's Island as well because I don't really, I didn't really watch the show that much. I just kind of know the characters a little bit and sort of just gave up on the idea pretty quick when I was like, I don't know what would happen on this island. I don't really care that much about the characters as opposed to Andy Griffith, which I watched, and Serial Killer stuff, which I love. So makes it a little bit more challenging. What about you guys, Heather and Justin? Do you have any other things you want to mention that cross your little minds? That I only had the one idea. Like, I just... <laughs> I I was kind of wondering if that one was even going to be a good one. So, yeah, but I, um, I just like hearing everybody else's because everybody's super creative with it. Well, see, no, I, I thought the Care Bears, too. That was an idea I had, like, was just Care Bears. I didn't go any further than Care Bears because <laughs> I couldn't think of a way to, like, change them. I was like, God, oh, they're so wholesome. I just couldn't think of what to do with them. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm also good, too. Really, I just had those two ideas. And then that Beauty and the Beast one just kind of really just got me thinking about all of it. And then I just <laughs> abandoned anything else and just kind of went into that. So uh got immersed into that story. So no, that, those were the only two I had. But man, I liked a little bit of everyone's ideas. Everybody brought something really cool to the table. This was a fun concept, you know? I think that of all of them, the Beauty and the Beast one is the is the most likely to be plausible since beauty and the beast is public domain and it's it's not it's not that far from something like sleepy hollow i think the beauty and the beast one is a solid idea well thank you man i I might have to like i said i'm i'm already thinking of man i might have to write this out and actually just put it on paper because you never know right you never know maybe i can make it myself who knows I mean, I I don't remember who said it, but whoever came up with that Brady Bunch idea, I really liked that one. (laughs) Mm, Right, right, right. Can't let that go unnoticed. No, because I just thought of something, too. At the end of the movie, like, they can cut off the people's heads, and then they can put them up on a wall, and it'd be, like, just the squares for, like, placing heads. (laughs) Yes. And then they can zoom out, and it's, like, a bunch of heads. But whenever you first see it, it, they're completing, like, a little group of nine, you know. With the heads. And one of them could be Alice's right in the middle. Oh, Alice's head right in the middle. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Also, like the Andy Griffith show, it also has an iconic theme. So you could get away with doing a creepy, iconic, creepy version of that iconic theme and legit play the, the theme at a certain point. I want Cradle of Filth to do a cover of it for the end. 
Yes. I'm not even a huge Cradle of Filth fan. I just feel like that would really capture it, though. Yep. So with all this being said, I'm a. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I'm a big fan of movies that end with uh, obnoxious, angry music. Because <laughs> I've done that in both of my movies. <laughs> so making an obnoxious, angry version of the Brady Bunch song would be perfect. We'll see, and I was actually going to use that as a transition because I just watched Greywood's plot today uh, to transition to because that's very much how your movie, like you said, ends is, you know, you've got, I don't want to say happy music, but you've got tonistically different music throughout the movie, but then it ends with sure. a very angry song. <laughs> Which is the, it's actually a part, or it's the whole version of the same song that plays at the beginning of The Good Exorcist when... Uh, it says the good exorcist on screen um, the first time right before Father Gill comes walking out of the church. That's the same song. I just played a very, very small part of of it in the good exorcist. And I played the whole thing for the credits because I realized the credits for Greywood's plot are so short that I can play a 20 second grindcore song for it. But uh, so with that, though, give us your little give us the plot or not. I don't want to say the plot, but like your synopsis, if you will, for for Greywood. Yeah. Give us the pitch. Greywood's plot is about two friends sort of on the br- the the brink of their breakup of the of that friendship sort of divorcing it in, in in a way um who find a, a tape of a chupacabra that's that's awkward footage but they decide to go make a documentary about it or attempt to make a documentary about it um and the owner of the land maybe not what he seems and everything kind of goes strange once they get to this this woods strange is an understatement but yes <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of my um it's it's my weird take on I, it's it's my weird take on like a frankenstein movie it sort of has a mixture of the i don't it's it's a really really tough movie for me to even describe and part of that is because of the fact that i didn't really sit down and think about the log line or what I wanted to pitch. And the movie just kind of naturally came to be through the circumstance of, you know, trying to make it failing and then finishing it. But I I really wanted to make something that was different and kind of my take on the old mystery science theater, 3000 black and white movies that are sort of um, trying weird things and not necessarily succeeding at them, but willing to try things at any given point. And, then I wanted to just get fucked up with it. <laughs> now, I do want to comment on something you said, and this is going to sound, it's going to sound like a backhanded compliment. I really don't mean it like that. But in, in doing this podcast, we've done a couple episodes where we kind of do our own versions of a reboot of an exist, you know, of a, a bad movie or something like that. And the one I got chosen for me that I made these people watch is actually a Mystery Science 3000 classic uh, with Manos hands of fate mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm gonna just say this i wouldn't say that you did like a mystery science 3000 movie with this because that just makes me think of manos and this is better than manos and that's what i mean is that sounds sure. like a backhanded compliment because lots of things are better than manos but i don't mean it like that i was just no i, I know what you mean what you said and i mean and i'm not gonna lie going into this like i know I, i've seen a lot of your pictures and stuff like that on facebook and stuff like that but like I'm not going to lie for being like for being low budget and stuff like that. I was really kind of worried and this is spoilers. So if you don't want to spoiler for gray woods, don't listen to me right now. Um, I was worried how the makeup was going to look at the end with the dog. Yeah. Aspect of it. 
And no, that really came across really good. Yeah, I think it did too. And part of it is just the way it's filmed, the way it's put together, like just making sure that we don't show that much and playing it in the shadows. And then, you know, at the end, when you finally get to see it, uh, it I think that the, the, we've laid the cheese on thick enough that you can understand what it that it, it isn't going to look like necessarily flawless, but the flaws make it what it needs to be. And it, I don't know, I, I really love the way it looks, especially like, you know, the last shots of the movie. Um, I think they turned out really good and it's all practical for the most part. Um, there's there's very little digital in the in the dog stuff. And we really wanted to try something and we made that mask ourselves. We didn't hire a crew to make it. We we filmed it ourselves. And, and one of the reasons we decided to make it black and white was because we knew we could get away with a lot more in the black and white casting shadows and getting really dark with it. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to see a photo of of a mask, but seeing it move and seeing, you know, the eyes in it and stuff like that really breathes a lot of life into it. Wow. Well, that's, that's commendable work, man, because yeah, I was going to, you, you stole my question. That was the first thing I was going to ask was like, how was that done? Was that a lot of practical effects and everything? So man, that's, that's commendable work. Uh, But since you answered that question, um, talk about the challenge of directing and acting, because I mean, I know because just uh, because I know that some people say it's it's a little easier because you're in more control. So when you're acting, you kind of know what the scene needs to be. And then I hear other people say, no, it's super challenging because you're on both sides of the camera. So can you speak to that or what your opinion of that is after this project? Yeah, well, with this one, it was especially challenging because a lot of the scenes that I'm like, it's just me and I literally filmed by myself. Like it was me in my basement running the camera, running fishing line to make the camera move and like with a tripod on wheels and stuff like that. So it went beyond just like, you know, being in front of the camera, but being able to trust your crew. I didn't even have a crew. I was filming a lot of that myself. Um, even stuff in the woods where oh, okay. you see just me and like Keith is or like if it's just a shot of me at times, I just was like out in the woods filming that by myself and I filmed Keith's stuff separately. So I basically, you know, was literally a rebel without a crew on a lot of the shots. But the uh, there there is something to be said, though, with the fact that I know what I'm trying to get and I know what I want it to be so I could film it look back and be like, ah, I fucked that up, film it again, be like, ah, I fucked that up and do it a couple of times till I got exactly what I wanted. Um, I filmed the the scene in the bathroom, the like attempted suicide scene. I filmed that twice. I did it the first time and then I, I edited it and I put it all together and I was like, it's OK, but I think I can do better. And I filmed it again. And I, I think and the second time it turned out much better. Um, but that was just me in my bathroom with the camera. <laughs> Man, okay, okay. Well, that well that sheds a lot of light because I wondered was somebody else holding it? Were you telling somebody? Wow, so that was just you, man. Well, again, man, commendable work. Yeah, the scenes, um, a lot of the scenes with Doug and Dom during the surgery stuff. That stuff was literally Daniel and I, just the two of us filming that. In fact, the scene where he's um unwrapping the bandages which is like one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Daniel and I, and we're in most of the shots together. We filmed that just the two of us. And it was like setting up the camera and trying to figure out if the shot's right and then trying it out and then watching it back and being like, okay, that didn't really work. And we just 
tried things over and over again. And it was that was a really challenging one to do because we had to try to figure out how to get camera motion with no one else there, which, you know, literally came down at times the same thing with like fishing line and tying string around my foot so we could make it move and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, we had to we had to wow. think way outside of the box to try to make that movie come together. The most we ever had working at any given point was four of us. The, the it was Daniel, me, Keith, and then the dude that plays the fly guy. The we you know we called him Igor, but you never really find out what his name is. <laughs> he that's my buddy Strauss, and Strauss. Ah, uh, well, that character was never meant to be in the movie, but as we were writing it or as we were filming it, I was just like. The first time you see him walk across the field, I was just like, why don't you just walk across this field and we'll do a random scene where we slam on the brakes and almost hit you. And you'll just be a creep, creepy guy <laughs> that sets up that this movie's weird. And then we were looking at the footage and I'm like, what if I put flies all over him? And then we just kept going with the fly thing, the, the fly theme, because we had the flies at the beginning of the movie and that just kept going. And he became the fly guy slash Igor. Um, but Strauss was the one who made the Dogman mask and with me and he i mean he did most of the work because i had to do the cast of my face like i had to be it was cast to my face we learned how to do like a face cast um which was interesting because we did it in my kitchen and we had no idea what we were doing so there was always this fear of like oh i might die in my kitchen so because we had no idea if the like nose holes would plug up or what would happen so we 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 made that in my kitchen and I gave my kids cell phones so they could run around and film it so that at least if I died in my kitchen, I would have video proof of what happened. So, <laughs> yeah, we just did everything ourselves. DIY filmmaking. Man, well, I have to say, man, like th there are some really good shots in the film, just some where I noticed like noticeably good shots where I was like, man, that was a really good shot there. Man, they got a good angle there. And to hear uh, that you did it with such limited resources, that's pretty impressive, man, because you really can't tell that uh just by looking at it and you know in some movies sometimes with you know low budget films and things like that you can tell that the resources are limited or oh it just seems like they were only able to get a few angles but it definitely doesn't feel like that you guys got a lot of variety in the shots so uh much appreciated man yeah part of that is just like really thinking about what you're looking at i think a lot of people point the camera and then are afraid to do anything else with it they're afraid to go like well what if we just tilt it down or what if we move it to the left and and actually like think about the composition of the background and the foreground and what's happening not just the character that's walking across the screen that's where the eye needs to be but that doesn't need to be where the beauty comes from so a lot of the shots that we got we were just trying to think of like well, how can we make this shot good? Because we have no budget. So let's use our foreground and our background in this, you know, beautiful house or, you know, do a really flat shot that looks interesting. And it was always about trying to find what would be cool in the shot. And like that scene, that last shot, one of my favorite moments, and I, the movie isn't even out yet. We're still going to film festivals and stuff like that. And it's so hard not to reveal that shot of Father Gill, or Father Gill, of, of Doug Graywoods and Dom or dog boy sitting by the lake or standing. I'm, I'm sitting, he's standing by the lake because I love that shot so much. And yeah, that yeah. shot, as good as it turned out, that was just Daniel and I with 50 mile per hour winds getting pelted by sleet, just pelted. Daniel's ears were bloody by the end. 
standing out there. We'd set up the camera, then we'd run to our position, and then and we'd be recording, and we'd just stand there for a minute and see what we could get, and then the camera would tip over from the wind. We'd run back and pick it back up, and like it was miserable. But I think the reason why that shot works so well for me is because you, it is so awkward looking, and it has this weird American gothic to it. But I don't know if we would have got that if we wouldn't have put forth the effort of going out into the 50 mile per hour winds, sleet beating against the back of Daniel's ears so bad they were bleeding. <laughs> Luckily, oh, I got man. to wear that mask, so it wasn't so bad for me. But And the sad thing was it was supposed to be snowing that day, not sleeting. It was supposed to just be like a nice, gentle day with snow. So we planned to film that day and it was not what we expected. <laughs> but I will say I think it turned out looking just fine. And and it's worth the story of the pain. Yeah, for sure. And I I see what you mean, too, when we were talking earlier about, you know, black and white films and stuff. The way that this one is done, it, I just think that the style of what this movie is, it works better as black and white. Like, I don't know, just the the feel of it, the vibe of it. That's I think that was a perfect choice. And there's just a lot of subtlety to like some of the scenes that you do. Like there's some where they're I, I can't remember, but just somewhere they're just kind of walking through through the woods or walking along a path and you just see some really good shots, you know? So it's just cool that you're like, we're just going to kind of find good angles to do this kind of stuff in because some of those shots, I just think they were so visually awesome because you're just like, Oh, that looks really cool. Especially with the, with it being black and white, like some of those things stand out more um, in, in that vein. So I really, I thought it was really good. Well, the nice thing about black and white is you also have a lot of control in post-production, too. So I could enhance things that maybe like you don't notice that they're enhanced when you're just watching it. But I could, you know, right. sort of change the black and white in a vignette, whereas like then the focus stays on what's in the middle a little bit more. And it gives it mm -hmm. this aura that you just you don't necessarily notice it, but you kind of feel it. And I like that. We really I really did a lot with that. Um, there's almost no shot in the entire movie that doesn't have some sort of visual effect in it. And even if it's as subtle as like a little bit of dust in the air or I added a fly that flies across the screen or something small. And I, part of me just wanted I really took time to make sure that there wasn't a lot of shots that people would watch and go like, that's a boring one. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a good job, though. It was good choices. Very smart. No, very important question. Yes. How did you find the comfort level to be able to film somebody throwing a Game Boy, even if it was already broken? <laughs> it was already broken. So I'll say that at least at least I can justify that it was already broken. Oh, um, OK. Oh, man, that's a relief. Oh, man. Yes, that oh. was a that was a pre broken Game Boy. Um, it was one. I think that the batteries had gone bad inside of it. So it had like acid melted into it and we tried to fix it and it was just nasty and busted um but at the beginning that the when keith is first playing it that's and the and the screen had actually fallen off of that one so when the screen breaks off it was already broken off um but the the one that keith is playing is a different one that still works so i'll have you know that keith still has a game boy that works relief i did have someone tell me they're like i really liked the movie i thought it was fantastic but i have to say the only thing I found really fake about the movie was that the Game Boy broke just by being thrown. They're like, those things like can withstand bombs. There's there's like 
<laughs> Game Boys that had bombs dropped on them in Iraq that still work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it's legendary. You're, you're right about that. It's legendary for its durability. So, you know, good catch by your friend, because that's true. I've heard all kinds of stories about the Game Boy surviving things and still working. So, yeah, that is true. I said in in the movie's defense, the Game Boy kind of like just crappily shuts off like it like the battery got wiggled out. So it might technically still work, and it's just the screen that busted off, and the battery is loose on the inside. That might still be a working Game Boy. I mean, as far as what you guys were saying with that, though, my favorite anecdote when it came to a Game Boy was there was a group of people that climbed, like, Mount Everest, and they were talking about how, like, when they got to the top, all their electronics had stopped working at that point, with the exception of, like, two Game Boy DSs they had taken with them. Those were the only electronic pieces of equipment they had that still worked. (laughs) I believe it. I will say this. I've I've never had a Nintendo product just break on me. I was going to say that, too. Nintendo still to this day makes quality product like my kid shoved a like quality as in like it won't break. My kid shoved a quarter and a penny or something like that into the Wii. We had we had a Wii and he shoved a quarter and a penny into it. And I'm like, well, that thing's fucked. Like, there's no way it's going to work now. This was when he was like one years old and. Just recently, we I decided, you know what, fuck it. If it's broken, we're going to pull the penny and the quarter out and give this Wii to a family who wants one. And we did. We, we pulled it out and the thing still worked. And I could not believe it. You looked at an Xbox 360 wrong and the thing fucking broke. Like, yeah. well, I mean, no, no yeah, one else. Especially was that generation and stuff like that. But there was somebody did like durability tests with like a GameCube, a PS2 and an Xbox. And the things that that GameCube was able to go through. We're just yeah. astounding. Man, now I'm going to watch Nintendo durability videos after I watch Care Bears. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. My night's pretty much never going to end at this point. <laughs> it's, well, I was going to say ruined, but not really. That sounds like a great night. Right? Yeah, it's a great night. It's a terrible tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe over the weekend, you know, do it then. Oh, I don't know. I'm in the middle of buying Care Bears right now as we speak. perfect fire up some uh bagels or maybe just some sesame seed buns you know what i mean (laughs) that's true and this time you can't blame ryan for this this is josh and our fault now (laughs) that you're buying stuff during a podcast yeah ryan got banned from the podcast for a little while because every time ryan came on the podcast i bought something nice (laughs) he would mention something and he's like i need to see it I did not bring up Care Bears. Oh, I know. I didn't. Yeah, because <laughs> no, he brought up your The Hunter from the Future. And so I bought that. And then the other time we had him on, he mentioned the the different plot line from Jaws Revenge, the novelization. Yes. And about how in the novelization, the reason why the, the shark has supernatural abilities to find the, the family is because it's actually possessed by a like a voodoo priest puts like a curse on it to like hunt down the family. And hmm. so I Did became, you read it? Yeah. It's about as good as the movie. But it has a voodoo shark in it, which just makes it better. Yep. <laughs> which is exactly what I said it would be when I when we were talking about it on the podcast. I was like, wait, how do you have a plot that involves a voodoo shark and you not keep that in the movie? Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. Yeah, the entire rest of the movie. <laughs> Which would have been redeemed if it had a voodoo shark. Which 
I still put out there to the listeners. If anybody wants to design voodoo sharks, we can have a contest and I will get a voodoo shark tattooed on my body. So that's still oh an boy. open invitation for people to send in drawings of a voodoo shark. Right next to your Whataburger tattoo? I don't know if I'm going to get a voodoo shark on my neck, but <laughs> if it's good enough, I might. It wouldn't be the craziest thing I've done. I've got a gigantic Whataburger tattoo on my neck, so I might as well. But we'll see. But I am serious. Send in designs for a voodoo shark. If I get enough of them, we'll have a contest. We'll see it, and I'll get it tattooed on me. Amazing. See, I want to see. I want to see Spread if you. I'm, I, I'm kind of. I'm kind of uh, tempted to ask if we. If we actually do get people doing this, I'm kind of tempted to see if you would do one too, Josh. Because I know you can. You're all artistic and shit. Yeah, <laughs> you'd get. It'd be pretty. It'd be wild. I do some pretty nasty art these days. Gross stuff. I just, I think you should do it anyway. I really, I'm going to put your, your name in the ring there. That's the thing that was like, like, because <laughs> okay. what it would come okay. down to is if I get like, if I get like four or five people to send me designs, I'll put those up for a vote and whichever one wins, I'll get tattooed on me. I really like this idea. We need to do this. I like this too. This is awesome. I mean, I know we put it out there, but it was in passing. Now we should actually like actively, no, you know, I, get I, the I, word I 100% out. meant it then. And like I said, it, it could just be the fact that people, you know, thought I was joking. No, I'm dead serious. So if you know artistic people, get Voodoo Shark designs and fuck it, we'll have a drawing. We'll have a contest. I like it. <laughs> so we can even, I don't know, do a video of me getting it tattooed on. Who knows? Yes. I like this idea and I may end up making a Voodoo Shark this weekend. See, there you go. Do it. I mean, fuck it. If I get like two or three, I'll put it up for a vote. Who gives a shit at this point? I'm going to be posting this on social media as soon as we get done because I'm excited for this now. <laughs> yes. Oh, all right. So let's come up with a deadline. Let's go. So let's go two weeks from tomorrow. What is so that will be March 13th. So Friday the 13th. There we when go. Friday, this episode. This, this episode will actually Perfect. come out on March 4th is when this episode will air. Okay. Um. But yeah, Friday the 13th. Fuck it. That's the deadline. Friday, okay. March. 13th. I, got, I'm gonna, I need to write myself a note. Draw. Now, see, see. Now shark. I feel. I feel like that's going to be too short of a time period. Let's just say the end of March, March 31st. That gives people an entire month to do drawings. There you go. There you go. From when this airs. Um, I like it. Not gonna I like figure it. out what a, what a voodoo shark looks like. Exactly. No one knows, and that's what kind of makes me excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just fuck it, voodoo shark. Um. Hell yeah. So, anything else for Josh? Before I go on to this one ancillary topic that is very specific to today. <laughs> I am good. No, he did a great job talking about his movie. I am good. Yeah, thanks, Josh. No problem. All right, so before we wrap this up then, I, I must say, I was very tempted after I got off work and before we recorded to uh, go like try to find a train whistle at a store of some sort. Um, except I just don't know where the fuck one buys a train whistle. When you need one right now, I know I could have looked it up on Amazon and gotten it in like a day or two, but I would have wanted it for tonight because I'm all aboard the fucking hype train for this candy man that comes out later this year because the trailer dropped today <laughs> and holy fuck am I excited for that fucking movie. I already knew I was going to be oh, yeah. like looking forward to it because candy man is my favorite horror movie. And then if anybody listened to our Southside Podfest episode where we talked about our favorite movies based in the city of Chicago, that was my number one movie, you know, based in the city of Chicago. And yeah, holy fuck, that looks amazing. I am just all about it. And while I am slightly tired of the trope of, in trailers especially, taking pop songs or, or some sort of song and doing a very slowed down version of them, 
It, it's just, it's tiresome at this point. But holy fuck, doing Say My Name by Destiny's Child, all like just chopped I and think, screwed. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. And they didn't overdo it. Like, it oh, no. wasn't the whole thing. It was very subtle. In fact, the first time you hear the Say My Name, I was like, wait, is that, is that? Like, it kind of threw me off. It right. didn't feel quite so forced as the other ones. Yeah, yeah, same here. I, that that was the exact thought I had. I was kind of like, "Wait a minute, is that is that Destiny's Child?" And it took a second, and then I was like, "Oh, okay, that's pretty cool." And then it was in and out, like you said, it was in and out. They it didn't overstay its welcome for sure. I I think if it's done right, it's good. Like, and I I think um I know the what was it in Us when they did the Five on It song that was perfect. You know, and like, so if you do it the right way, I do like it. But in this one, I liked this one, but I do know what you mean. They do it sometimes and you're like, no, that's not working well. But maybe a Jordan Peele is just really good at doing it. I don't know. But I I thought it was good. I'm fine with it in the movie. I'm just talking about in trailers specifically. That's where it's getting tiresome to me is just in trailers. Like, I'm pretty hyped about the new Ghostbusters coming out, but just doing that slow you know version of the ghostbusters theme song or like they did the slow pinocchio for avengers age of ultron you know what i mean it's just right that in trailers that's what's driving me nuts at this point is it's like that's the big trailer thing instead of doing you know the trailer voice from back in the day now it's just slowed down pop songs right and the reason they do that is because it's just comfortable like it instantly makes the audience go like i know that i want to see that because i know that i'm comfortable already um yeah. i'll see that's a good and honestly that's why i i'm but for the audience that's why they do it that's why when i did with graywood's plot the reason why i did home on the range and house of the rising sun and originally there was going to be a version of get along little doggies is because i they're they're public domain and i could have friends do the songs for free, basically. And but it would instantly make the audience feel comfortable because they know Home on the Range. Like, it's just, you know, that song when it plays. Mm. And I was able to get Scarlett to do the voice. So I'm like, this movie's black and white. No one knows anyone from it. And I can use this song to, like, make people feel a little comfortable with it. And that's why it's in the first scene of the movie. It starts with Home on the Range is because I wanted people to hear that and feel a little comfortable, even if unnerved, but a little comfortable. Um, so I essentially made like a tiny little trailer at the beginning of Greywood's plot of Doug sitting around a bunch of flies to just set the audience at ease. So I get the concept as to why they do it. But I 100 percent agree that now it just bugs me. Like I'm like, you're trying to make me feel comfortable with your fucking movie. Stop it. Stop it. Um, but I, I, I did think in this one it worked because it didn't make me feel comfortable with it. It made me go, is that the song? Are they, or is that a Candyman thing that I'm totally forgetting? And then you hear it the second time and you're like, no, that's definitely Destiny's Child. And then you hear it. I think they play it like one more time and then it's gone. And I was just like, what a bold move to just barely use it and almost play that trope, like make fun of it slightly. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, this was like just kind of, a more refreshing way of doing it because it's taking a very iconic song. It's a very well-known song. And just like you said, it just uses it a couple of times enough for you to go, Hey, that was that. But then it fits so much within what Candyman is like, or not. I think that's what I right. It's you. It's not it, it itself. That's that song, the poppy 
what it's about doesn't fit. But then when you hear the say my name, you're like, ah, damn. Yeah, that's what he would want. Like, it's just fucked up. I mean, yeah, it'd be like, I mean, because if they had done what Candyman by what Christina Aguilera, that would have bugged me. Right. Even if they had done like a creepy version of Candyman by Zed and Aloe Black, that would have bugged me. But just the say my name, because it very much feels like it's that's part of the point of this movie is that like the urban legend of the Candyman was forgotten and it's coming back, that type of thing, you know? So it's that, that um, like kind of like um, omniscient, you know, call to like bring him back type of thing, which is very exciting. And Vanessa Williams is back. And that's very exciting too. I'm, I'm just all kinds of hyped about this movie. I guarantee at some point in marketing, they tried to figure out if they could use the uh, a dark version of the Candyman can. Someone pitched that at a meeting from Charlotte, Willy Wonka and the <laughs> Chocolate Wonka? Factory. Yeah. <laughs> Someone at some point pitched the Willy Wonka, the Candyman can done dark with like a deep voice. And thank God that didn't happen. Well, Jordan Peele's got all the fucking clout in the world right now. So he probably slapped that person and I wouldn't blame him. <laughs> and I mean, I want to just say one last thing before we in uh, this about the whole Candyman thing, because I've been all over the Internet. Because I'm just, like I said, I'm all aboard the hype train for this fucking movie. And I saw so many people commenting on the fact that, like, they're annoyed that this movie is going to be about gentrification. And all I'm thinking is, did you see the first fucking Candyman? Dear fucking God. Like, yes, that's what this movie is going to be about. But it's not like they're just doing it to have social commentary for nowadays. That's what the first fucking movie is about. Like, holy fuck, people. Right. I don't. And I think that no matter what you make the commentary of the movie you're going to fight people who are going to bitch about the fact that there's going to be a commentary for a movie. But if the movie wasn't about something, no one would like it then because it wouldn't be about something. There'd be no heart to it. The filmmakers wouldn't have put their love into it because they wouldn't have had a topic to, you know, put forth. And I think, I don't think that that's any different than the original. I totally agree with you. Well, and, and real quick, just so we can draw this like full circle. That's one thing I did appreciate in, in Greywood's plot. Like, with the character you play and that conversation that Daniel's character has with them, you know, during the whole alchemy thing, whenever that's revealed and stuff that like that whole wanting to be something. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely like Greywood's plot has a surprising amount of, I have a surprising amount of personal attachment to the theme of the movie. And it's always nice when someone, notices the theme or kind of figures out what i'm talking about but i also like it when people take away their own thing from it i definitely didn't want it to just be something that people watched and don't necessarily think about but i also you know it's also about a, a dog boy so it is what it is <laughs> but yes there's definitely like there's something to be said about art and creation and your personal attachment to what you're becoming in life no definitely in in, in that journey to find like that and to find the ability to do that and stuff like that. I mean, I just, at least to me that like very much rang true. Cause it's, well, I'm sure with Heather and Justin, like even if we weren't doing this podcast, sure. We'd probably talk movies all the time and shit, but like in doing it in this way and recording it and stuff like that, like you, you want people to listen to it and you want people to hear it and to connect with it in some way, shape or form. And you know, totally. you know, yeah. and stuff like that. So no, I, I definitely got that. And, and like, and, and to me, that's something that, like you said, it, it's what makes movies like even something like this, that is like a very low budget. And like you said, it's a movie about a dog boy and stuff like that, that it still gives something that like that plot line or that narrative that is universal to people that 
it can, you can just relate to it. And that's one of the things that can like pull you in. You know what I mean? You can not be like a horror connoisseur or, you know, that this be your typical type of movie. But when you've got that hook that can connect with people on an in general level, you can get people to enjoy your movie or watch your movie or follow your movie without it necessarily even being something that they would otherwise be into. Right. And those, the people who don't like horror necessarily, who have, uh, you know, come to screenings based on being family or friends or something like that, it's really nice hearing their response to it because often they, you know, they're not just watching it for the blood or for what they, they think they're going to get out of it. They're actually like really, really focusing on it. And that's been really great. But then, then even just hearing the horror audience connect to it and come up with ideas and, you know, it is a universal concept of wanting to be something bigger than you think you are. And hopefully I could, I kind of got that in there. <laughs> yeah, you did for sure. Yeah, I definitely took that from it. And that's just one of those, like you guys are saying, that's just kind of one of those universal messages. Like you said, you don't necessarily have to be a horror connoisseur to, to understand when you're at a point in your life and you want, you feel like there's something better out there but you don't know what it is. You haven't quite yeah. found it and the struggles of that and how sometimes that can happen in an, un you can find that in an unexpected way in an unexpected person in an unexpected set of circumstances. And that totally is relatable, you know? And it doesn't, it doesn't always look pretty when it's done. I think that was like yeah. a big part of it to me was that, that statement of like, sometimes you have to make big changes and it, you're not going to come out unharmed and you're not going to come out you know the way you were before so that was that was a big piece of it but the other piece was i just wanted to see what daniel would act crazy like so <laughs> i thought it'd be fun to have father gill you know he did phenomenal though so yeah that was great yeah, it was really fun figure it was really fun figuring out that character with him i remember the first time he showed up in the first scene that doug shows up in the movie was actually the first scene that we filmed and when Daniel was like, hey, I'm going to try something for a couple takes. And if you don't like it, just tell me and we'll cut it and we'll change. But I just want to try it. And he put on that like northern Minnesota, you know, Michigan accent, that weird Doug Graywood's accent that he has. And I had always heard it more like dark and southern. And there's just something about the kindness in Doug's voice and that accent that makes it just work. It just works so well to me. And that was, you know, we we found that character as we developed it, he and I talking about it and and trying things like that out. In fact, that there's a line that he has that I absolutely love. And it's when uh, it's when we wake up in, in the morning and Doug is cutting the plant or whatever after we'd been drinking the night before. And uh, Daniel has this line where he's like, I say, you know, we had a couple drinks or a few drinks, and he's like, a few? Looks like you had a fucking six-pack. That line, yeah. like, always makes me laugh, and it make it catches you off guard so dramatically that you're like, is Doug gonna be a bad guy? Like, is I don't get what this character is. Like, and that was a total improv line by Daniel. He just, like, said that as a, as a joke, and he hates it still to this day. He's like, I don't know if it works, and I disagree. I think it works because it throws the audience for a complete loop. I mean, I didn't know whether or not to take like offense to that line because I'm like, oh, a six-pack between two people, and I'm like, fuck, I do that just whenever I feel like it. <laughs> I'm like, damn. Exactly. That's do what I need I to readdress my life? 
that's what I love about it is it's because like Doug is so innocent. He doesn't even know what a lot of drinks is. He has no idea what is going on. Like he's so ignorantly sweet in that moment that you kind of just like you kind of just like let Doug go at that point. And then so when shit hits the fan, it's so much more fun to watch. Yeah. And he's a he's definitely a talented guy because after seeing him in The Good Exorcist and then and especially seeing him here, because there are scenes where half of his face is covered. So a lot has to be done with eyes and mannerisms and tone of voice and things like that. And he absolutely nails those scenes and the exact mood that needed to be in those scenes. He just I just thought that he nailed it. And and I was just like, man, look at this guy. And I was like, you know, this is this was a good exorcist. So, I mean, yeah, I really appreciate his range and his ability in the moment, you know. Yeah, that and that scene where he has that huge monologue that his face is covered the whole time. I did that because I was like, Daniel, I want to see how I want to prove that you can act with your eyes because so much acting does happen in the eyes. And I, he's never been I've never like pushed him to do something like that. So it was like me really challenging him. And that's kind of why we made this movie was because we just wanted to challenge each other and see what we could do with nothing. We made this movie for like a, all together a couple thousand dollars. And most of that was booze, honestly. So, uh <laughs> So, you know, and hotel rooms, booze, hotel rooms and gas. That's basically what we put all the money towards. And um, so, yeah, so I, I really wanted to push him. So those moments really get me and like or are, are really impressive to me. But the whole time, every scene he's in, I just I, I wanted him to just really go for it. And he did because I knew that, you know, Keith has never acted before. And I just it, that was just an excuse for me and Keith to, you know, we made movies when we were six years old. And I was like, hey, man. Let's make a movie together and see what happens. And it was just necessity of three best friends trying to make a movie together. And then a fourth friend just kind of tagged along. Um, but yeah, it was it, it was really awesome, like getting to let Daniel do something way, way different than the movie he did before. Well, Josh, where can people find you on social media and stuff like that? Or where? how can they keep up to date with what's going on with flush studios i am all over the place you can catch me on twitter at josh stifter um i'm also i also have at flush studios but i don't really use it very often um come directly to me on twitter uh i also uh, we have a flush studios facebook page uh flush studios instagram is at flush studios you could check out my stuff uh joshstifter.com if you want to see uh some of my animations demo reels learn a little bit more about me um you could check out the good exorcist right now on amazon prime and trauma now that's where it's streaming uh it should be on other things relatively soon i think we're, we're trying to get on 2b tv we're trying to get on uh, a couple other platforms but right now it's amazon prime and trauma and graywood's plot will hopefully be out this summer um it depends on the film festival circuit at the latest my guess is early fall like september all right so oh my i don't know what happened to me there all right so on that note guys thank you guys for listening to the sim slayers podcast check us out at simaslayers.com or sim slayers podcast on facebook uh cinema underscore slayers on instagram and twitter um i hope you guys enjoyed this you know uh episode topic today we are going to try to add more of just these topic episodes for you guys so you don't have to be watching the newest of movies all the time 
uh, to keep up with the Cinema Slayers podcast. So uh, check those out. And if you haven't been listening to the Cinema Slayers podcast in a while because we just do these movies and stuff like that, we have changed the format a little bit. So then that way at the beginning of the episode, we do go spoiler-free and give our recommendations and scores and then go into spoilers instead of the other way around. And we do have time codes in the descriptions and things like that with a warning during the episode to kind of keep you posted on that. So just check those out if you were kind of worried that we might ruin an episode or ruin a movie for you. Now you can listen to part of it and judge whether or not you want to, you know, keep listening and watch the movie or, you know, not watch the movie and keep listening. However you want to do that. Up to you guys. And like we were talking about, uh, March 31st, it's going to be the deadline for uh, getting zombie or not zombie voodoo shark designs into us. Voodoo shark. And we'll do a contest if we get enough of those and... Uh, I will get it fucking tattooed on my body because I give no fucks. And I'm really stoked about the idea of getting a voodoo shark tattooed on me. So, yes, uh, send us your designs. on. Um, you can send them to cinemaslayerspodcast at gmail.com um, or uh, message them us on Facebook or, I don't know, any of the social media, I guess. Just send them to us however you want. I don't know. Mail it to me. If you really want, if you know my address, if you know my personal address, mail it to me. That's fine, too. We'll figure it out either way. Um, so yeah, just give us those ideas. And, uh, like I said, we'll, if we get enough, we'll put it out for a vote. And like I said, I'll, I'll get some, I'll get some ink and we'll, we'll, uh, film it and everything. We'll get it out there. And so everybody can watch me in a lot of pain because I'm a fucking pansy when it comes to getting tattoos. I have a lot of them. <laughs> I, I hate getting them though. Cause I don't handle pain well, but which, like I said, a lot of people will be surprised. I have a ton of tattoos but either way. So if you just like hate me. Because I, you know, talk shit about one of your favorite movies. Guess what? You can see me in a lot of pain getting a tattoo. So, um, but other than that, guys, remember, according to Justin, Moon Knight is a Best Picture winner. discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day flawless